0: Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast about higher education that explores what's working, what's not, and what needs to change in higher ed marketing and administration. I'm your host, Kevin Tyler. All right, President John Comerford, thank you so much for joining me today on Higher Voltage. It's so great to see you again. We had a conversation a couple of years ago when I lived in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I appreciate you making the time to have another chat with us about all things higher ed Um, but mostly about partnerships. Um, It occurred to me while I was reviewing some of the material for this conversation that we had scheduled this interview the day after rankings had been released. And I know that you have some very significant uh, and direct thoughts on rankings. And so I thought we might expand this topic area from not just partnerships, but also in terms uh, of having conversations about prestige, and price. So just a little background, and we'll have a link to this on our page for this episode, but a little background, President Comerford from uh, Otterbein University penned an op-ed for The Hill talking about the higher ed's need to return to service ethic uh, approach to teaching. And it was published on the day of the presidential debate, Uh, coming to Otterbein's campus. And I just want to talk to you about some of the thoughts that you included in that piece, uh, particularly around prestige and price coming off the heels of yesterday's rankings uh, releases. Can you talk about your just your general perception of the way that higher ed is ranked or assessed and your thoughts on how it could change moving forward?
1: Well, sure, Kevin. I'm glad to be back with you to have another conversation. It has taken me some time to get over you leaving Central Ohio, but (laughs) you've landed with a great firm. And so I'm glad to talk to you again. Uh, And we've got lots of ground to cover as as usual. I, I, I fundamentally think that a focus on rankings and prestige is the rot at the heart of American higher education. Um, It leads us to a model where all the incentives are perverse. All the incentives in American higher education uh, that most institutions respond to end up doing harm to students, harm to society, and harm to the institutions themselves. And so at the heart of it is, is, if it's all about input variables, Right. And that's what the rankings primarily measures, input variables, how selective you are, how much money you spend, what other schools think of you and this sort of silly reputational score and things like that. If those are all the variables, then nowhere are the outcome variables or the process variables about how well do you do for your students? Uh, it, It rewards schools for trying to attract the best and brightest. And then guess what? They graduate the best and brightest. I'm frankly not impressed. Um, we ought to be creating an incentive for schools to serve underrepresented populations and to do the work of lifting up our society, and making the American dream more achievable for more students. But instead, the rankings don't reward any of that. Uh, And yet schools spend so much of their time chasing them that they're led to do things like create merit aid programs that uh, go to high ACT, SAT scores, and high GPAs that we know, we know, Kevin, you know, are highly correlated to family income. And so most financial aid in American higher education goes to students without financial need. And then we want to claim to be charities. I just find the whole thing sort of outrageous. Uh, and I think it's it's uh, well past time for higher ed leaders to sort of uh, rise up against the, the system because it's not helping anybody.
0: Let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. Higher Voltage is brought to you by Squiz. University websites are filled with great information. But oftentimes, a simple internal site search does not give users the information they're looking for. Funnelback, a site search product by Squiz, changes the way people engage with content by revolutionizing search. It delivers relevant and comprehensive search results for users, which is key for business objectives. Visit squiz.net, that's S-Q-U-I-Z dot to see how Funnelback by Squiz can create a smarter site search option for your institution's website today. So how instead would you recommend or suggest that higher ed would be assessed for families who are trying to make the best decisions for their students? Um, What's a
1: new way to kind of um, quantify quality? Okay, so if I were in charge of the world, uh, which is never going to happen, but let's just pretend for a second that you could actually do such things, right? This will be fun. Uh, The things that would occur to me would be – uh, looking at whether you truly have a representative campus. I would be looking at uh, racial diversity. I'd be looking at Pell Grant recipients on your campus. I mean, there are, there are campuses uh, with less than 10%. There are campuses with 2% uh, of the student body has a Pell Grant, which means they're from low to moderate income. And if the average is around, as I understand it, about 30% or so of all college students have uh, Pell Grant eligibility. If you're below that, there ought to be some accountability. That ought to count against you. Uh, Not just because you're not doing much for society, but because you're weakening the educational experience of every student on your campus. If you attract a heterogeneous group of students, all from the same socioeconomic status, all sharing these certain background characteristics, and then you pretend you're giving them a well-rounded education, when we know So much of the educational experience is based on peer group and those out of classroom interactions that are so important and those relationships that form. You're not providing a well-rounded education. You have to be able to provide that diversity on your campus. And yet that's not an incentive in the current ranking systems. I would then look at how those students perform. And I, I, this is not entirely self-serving, right, at Otterbein, but I think we would do really well on a measure like that, that over a third of our student body is Pell Grant eligible, so we're a little above average there. And then our Pell Grant eligible students are students of color, which our last incoming class was 28% students of color, so that makes us much more diverse in the state of Ohio. Our first-generation college students, in each of those cohorts, uh, our retention rates first year, second year are equal to or better than our average. And so that says there's something going right. We can talk about what what might or might be going right at a place like Otterbein, but I'd look at are we not just getting students into college, but getting them through college? I would then look at outcomes. I, I mean, I, I like the collegiate learning assessment, the CLA, and some other instruments out there over the years that try to measure critical thinking skills that try to measure the skills that employers are actually looking for? Is that what you're delivering in your education? As opposed to just assuming that a 30 ACT student, an input variable, is necessarily going to be great on the other end, but we never measure it. That doesn't make any sense. So those are a few things off the top of my head.
0: I love, I love all of those points that you just mentioned. And one of the most striking points about your response there, and also that you bring up in your piece from 2019 in the Hill, is about the way a person can stay in school, the way that a school can retain a student is by making sure they know what the costs are going to be all the way through, right? In order to be able to stay in school, you have to be able to afford it all the way through. And so those points around price, uh, your perspectives there, um, what does that look like at Otterbein And what do you think about it kind of as an industry issue that people are looking at far more closely than ever before?
1: Yeah, I I mean, if you look at the stats, the the trust in American higher education and colleges and universities has never been lower. And and that's our fault. And it's because of things we do, like the pricing game we play, where this is i will totally own. Our sector did this and independent uh, four years invented this in the 90s, where there's a sticker price that no one actually pays. And then the discounts, are vast majority of that aid is in merit aid. So the the discount all goes to students without any measure of, of financial need. What that does, it creates this artificial inflation where that sticker price goes up and up and up, even though the net price, for the most part, in higher ed hasn't really changed, as I understand. Now, public universities, chasing prestige in their own right, are picking up that model as well and providing lots of internal discounts, primarily in the form of merit aid. And it would be really nice if we could stop playing that game. However, we need a better educated consumer base. Unfortunately, students and their families have bought into this. They assume the $40,000 school is better than the $30,000 school, even though one might have a 75% discount rate and one might have a 50% discount rate. So the net price is very similar, if not the same. It just doesn't resonate. Um, And so we need a better educated consumer base. We need to be honest with the students coming to us. Uh, The problem for an individual institution like Otterbein is we can't be the one that bucks the model because given the consumer's understanding of price equals quality, we don't want to be the highest in the group. But we also can't really afford to be the lowest and be perceived as the least quality in the group. And so we've done a couple of things. One is who's really punished in this pricing game we play is first generation students who don't understand the sticker price isn't real. What they understand is, oh, that's thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. I could never afford that. My family doesn't make that much in a year. I can't even look at that school, so I don't apply. We can't package our financial aid, and they're blocked out of schools like ours. And so we've done something we call the opportunity scholarship, where how do you get to that population and make them understand you're affordable? You don't uh, the FAFSA and then waiting six months for a financial aid package and all these forms and and the federal government's made this very complicated. How do you cut through that? So we just said, hey, if you're from a family income in Ohio that is sixty thousand dollars or less, Otterbein will meet your full need for tuition, period. And that's clear, understandable. And that's where we're seeing the growth in our classes, especially pre-pandemic it was all from these underrepresented populations because we had found a signal into them about our affordability. Then for all of our other students, one of the games that, that schools play with price is we will give you a steep discount your first year, but then one of the reasons that sticker price goes up year over year over year, and many times the rate of inflation, is because that discount stays the same. And so if I, if, let's say I have a 50% discount rate, if I raise my sticker price 5%, your out of pocket has gone up 10% because we're not discounting that 5% increase, right? And that's a really unfair practice because that means by the time you're a senior, you're often paying 30, 40% more than you were as a first year student. That's not fair. That's, that's just unconscionable. And so we've got to be able to let students plan for the four years ahead. And rather than locking in that senior year price up front, which is what some of these tuition schemes where you play one rate for four years, what we've done is tuition transparency. We just said, hey, listen, it's going to go up 2% a year. It's inflationary. The price of things goes up. You can plan for it. No surprises. 2% a year. So you know what you're dealing with. And that's called tuition transparency. Which I think, I mean,
0: it feels revolutionary, but. It's like not at the same time, like being yeah. able to plan for expenses is something that uh, we've all tried to like be taught, et cetera. And I think from a higher ed perspective, it's just not talked about as much as you are talking about it uh, in the world. And I'm curious about what it's like to be uh, a president of a university with viewpoints and perspectives around prestige and price like the ones that you have have other people kind of like jumped on your bandwagon to join this conversation or do you get a lot of pushback? Is it like, what is it like to be a person who thinks like you in this space?
1: Well, the first key, Kevin, is don't take a job at a school that's elitist (laughs) because you won't last (laughs) long, right? Uh, If I I count my lucky stars or anything, it's that we can introduce these types of programs, really put access and affordability in the front of our mission and not have to be abashed or ashamed about that. And to be on a campus where... There has been no meaningful pushback. The faculty or alumni or whoever haven't organized against this because they want prestige. I'm not saying everyone here walks around with exactly the same thoughts on this issue. But as a general rule, Otterbein has always had this sort of bent to it. And I guess, Kevin, I came to it. uh, As you know, I was president of Blackburn College in Illinois before I was here. And that's a work college. Uh, That's a school where 75% of the students were Pell Grant eligible, uh, where it was proudly the lowest sticker price uh, private in the state of Illinois, and really as a work college was able to break that model. And so Otterbein is not and would not be a work college, that's a whole different model, but how do you take some of those mentalities where you don't have to be shy about this, and and, uh, and and certainly when this opportunity came along, that was one of the primary things I was testing: is that is this a school that's going to be a match for me in this regard? Because I don't want to play the elitism game and the rankings game. Uh, have other schools. Uh, Uh, it's interesting. Uh, One of my theories is uh, that, and and maybe the pandemic accelerates this, I don't, or maybe it delays it, I don't know, that as the demographics of 18-year-olds continues to decline uh, in Ohio and the Midwest, and and now, as I understand it, 49 of the 50 states, the demographics are moving in the wrong direction for growth, that other schools who are trying, fighting over those 30 ACT students, and we do too, uh, will wake up one day and say, hey, you know, Otterbein and and a few other schools they're they're still growing. What are they doing? A- and we'll say, well, we're doing need based aid. We're doing tuition transparency. We we've sort of trying to change the game here and chase a different population of students. A- and so I can't say there's been some groundswell, but I'm working on it. <laughs>
0: uh, I think it's a worthy cause to to work towards. Uh, I'm wondering about like these initiatives that you have and the way that the school is performing under these new kinds of policies around need-based aid and diversity, et cetera. Has Otterbein seen a drop in rankings uh, because of those decisions? And are you, I mean, I know that you're, I mean, based on what you say, it sounds like you're okay with that, but I just want to see if there's, has been that drop because you're focused on different things that feel more substantive for the people you're serving
1: interestingly no uh, and hmm. uh, it, it's funny I, have you heard Kevin Malcolm Gladwell's podcast revisionist history because he did yes. a, a yeah a few episodes on the rankings and one of his theories which which I don't know if it's true or not is that US news in fact, punishes schools that speak out against their system in the rankings. I don't, I don't know that anyone at U.S. News is paying attention to a small liberal arts college north of Columbus, Ohio. And so maybe we're just on the radar. Maybe they don't punish schools. I don't have any idea. We've seen our rankings increase. In fact, the, you just mentioned that rankings came out, uh, you know, in the last week or so. And we're in the uh, regional comprehensive, the Midwest comprehensive university list. And we went from 21 to 12 in just one wow. year which is a huge jump in a year. And so I have a couple of theories. One, it's doing things like hosting presidential debates, uh, hosting former Governor John Kasich and Arnold Schwarzenegger and John Kerry and Chris Evans of Captain America fame have all been on campus. And that sort of elevates probably some reputational school scores, I'm betting, as other schools are like, oh, I didn't know Otterbein hosted a debate or whatever. Um, and it might also be that... Um, not just me, but other leaders here speaking out and being leaders in the region and in higher ed or trying to be, raises the awareness of a place like Otterbein and might change its reputational scores. That's just a theory, though. I have no idea. Sure. And I'd like to um, have you just kind of talk about um, here a little
0: bit of Otterbein's history, because even as a Columbus native, I I was not clear or aware of how progressive a university or a college at the time uh, uh, Otterbein was. Um, You have shared some facts with me about Otterbein that I never knew uh, about. So can you share just kind of how Otterbein has kind of uh,
1: stepped into the future before some of the other institutions in the area? I'd love to. Well, and this is one of the reasons I was encouraged to come here just a little over three years ago is because of this sort of, it matched what I was looking for, that uh, Otterbein was founded in 1847 and was the first school founded co-ed. There were a few other schools that that were co-ed before us. We were the first founded as a coed institution. And, uh we were the first to put women and men in the same classrooms that that co-ed institutions at the time that were very few uh, and and the general mentality was that men and women were preparing for different fields of work or perhaps even that women couldn't keep up with the studies that men could keep up with uh, and so they were they, while there were women at the school they were in very separate curricula uh, that was never we've never done that at Otterbein. there's never been sex separate uh, courses or curricula uh, based on gender um, we were the first to have women on our faculty from the very founding. We had two women on the faculty, our first graduates were women. So there's this gender equality from the beginning. That they ascended to, we, we enrolled uh, students of color before the civil war. And I, I, I can't claim that it's always been a straight line. We've always done the right thing there, but our founders uh, were abolitionists, and wanted deliberately to send a message in those first years about this being an inclusive community. Uh, and so that was important from the beginning. You fast forward a little bit into, say, World War II. And Otterbein uh, deliberately recruited students uh, of uh, Japanese descent out of internment camps. Uh, as we all know, it's, it's one of the national shames in the history of our country that we interred uh, Japanese Americans during the war. And uh, we had a, a strong population of students. And in fact, when the students first came here, one of my predecessors, who was president in the 40s, um, had the, the campus chaplain assigned to escort those students to class to make sure that they would not be harassed. Uh, and once that worked for a few weeks and that stopped because the, they, in fact, they were so welcomed and supportive that they, they, they recruited their friends and colleagues of similar ancestry. Uh, and so this, one of the phrases you'll hear around here is do the right thing before it's popular. Uh, and so there's points in history where, where Otterbein did that. And today there are areas where we need to do the right thing before it's popular. And I think first and foremost are access and affordability issues. I can't agree with you more.
0: Uh, I think that's so true. Um, and are there other efforts or initiatives that you've put in place or that have been put in place maybe before, uh, your time there, uh, that get at that, uh, beyond the need-based tuition, et cetera. Are there other
1: things that you want to mention here, um, about access and affordability that you're that you're doing. Well, I, I think um, I I would I would dig a little deeper on our strong retention. Uh, and so, uh, at most American college and universities, you would see some achievement gap uh, for first generation students, students of color, low to moderate income students. We don't see that at Otterbein. And if you look at our data, because people, you know, sometimes I'll say that to a colleague from another school and they will say, really, how did you do that? And I can't really point to something, quote unquote, we did, except for uh, intentionally recruit and achieve critical mass, that um, one of my favorite stats is if you were here I think eight years ago at Otterbein. So it's before my time. I don't, this, this place is doing great things long before I was here. Um, in the incoming class eight years ago, there would have been a grand total of four uh, students that were coming from Columbus City Schools. And as Kevin, you would know, Columbus City Schools is the largest school district in the state of Ohio. And it is literally our next door neighbor here in Westerville. They're right next to us. And we had four. And, and now we regularly get 70 or 80 Uh, in every incoming class from Columbus City Schools. Um, And and that that goes to something else I know we're going to talk about, which is partnership, is making sure that we bring these students and then they are successful. Uh, And that success, at least we think, as long as you do, you see our retention numbers and that gap close as we achieve critical mass. And you go from being, one, maybe the only student in your class who's a student of color or the only student trying to join a fraternity or sorority and maybe you don't have extra money or whatever it is, to suddenly you're not alone here. Right? This is normal and acceptable, and we want you for who and what you are, uh, is very Otterbein, uh, and it also is the key to those students being successful when they arrive. This is, uh, I think a perfect segue
0: into the third P of our conversation. We've covered prestige and price, but uh, there are some really exciting initiatives around partnerships that exist at Otterbein University. And I'd like to start by um, just you giving kind of a high level of your view of what partnership, the role partnerships play in an educational experience for the students, faculty, and staff at at Otterbein.
1: Yeah, well, let me start with, because uh, we're very excited about this in general, and it's a big topic. I think where we have been traditionally in higher ed is the quote unquote ivory tower on the hill. Right. Yeah. And and we've sort of prided ourselves on our disconnection from the society and world around us. Right. And, and that comes it doesn't come from a bad place, Kevin. It, it comes from a place of. We walk around thinking about uh, philosophy and, and don't, and we we live at this thirty thousand foot level, and that's part of what we teach, and and that's a good thing, not a bad thing, right? We're not a training place. We we think big thoughts, and that's a good thing. But the disconnection part of it is not. Um, and so, how do we through the entire life cycle of a student, the entire life cycle of a human being? connect in partnership to serve people when and where they need to be served so the mentality can't be well you bring students to us and we want them to be a certain type they need to be prepared in a certain way and be able to pay a certain bill and whatever so we're choosy on that end and then we'll put on a program that we think is important but we're not going to talk to employers about what they want we're just going to just you know We're going to teach what we think is important and and what the workforce demands are, what the economy needs, what employers want, but we're not going to ask those questions. That that has to stop, and I think it has on many campuses, but at Otterbein, it's about partnership with K through 12. How do we get, if we're in a declining demographic environment, how do we get through that? It's by getting more students to go to college, right? Uh, And so that's about K-12 partnership. We can talk more about that if you want to. Then it's about workforce development. That's what we are. We're we're workforce developers. Um, And so how do we bring employers into that conversation? In our case, actually onto campus in a building we call The Point where they work with our students hand in hand and R&D projects right here as part of that experience. Uh, And then it goes on to adult learning. Uh, Gone are the days where you can just go to college and say, well, that's it. Done with that. Uh, I don't have to go worry about school anymore. The economy, everything about our world is changing so fast that anyone with that mentality is going to get left behind. And so how do we get more into adult degree completion, graduate programs? How do we break out of the degree mold? Not, we're still due degrees, but not everything we do has to be a degree program. Right. Not everything we do has to carry academic credit. Maybe there's just something we can do that's an upskilling six-week session for uh, whatever profession, and we can be that because that's what we do. Uh, and all the way through, we have a very robust lifelong learning community out of mine that serves retirees. And so you have, you recognize you're part of a system. You're not the ivory tower on the hill. You're an important part of this ecosystem. And the only way this works well is through intentional partnership. Oh, my
0: word. when you Whenever I hear you talk about this, I get so excited that there is a space and a person who is championing these kinds of things. Because it's I just it just seems so common sense and so... Like, of course, schools would think about this, but it just isn't that way. And so um, I just get super amped when you talk about it in the way that you do, because obviously it's a passion of yours and the way that you're doing it at Otterbein is pretty fantastic. So um, let's start with the K through 12 partnerships, because I really want to save the point for last because I think that is just absolutely fantastic. So let's dig into K through 12 and what that looks like at Otterbein University.
1: So K-12, uh, we intentionally cultivate relationships with, at the school district level. We, we do. We have admissions reps like every other school does, and they go in and they know high school counselors, and they visit the schools, and we do that too, right? That's important. Of course, yeah. um, But we're, we're talking at the district level about what are they worried about, what are they trying to do, and, and a few things emerge from that. Uh, and it depends on the school district. Some school districts are very worried about teacher professional development and retention. And so we have we have contracts with several school districts where their teachers take Otterbein graduate courses, sometimes even offered on-site in that school district, and it's on the topic that uh, the school district wants to emphasize. So it might be um, Uh, serving students with disabilities. It might be gifted education. You name the topic, we can deliver it with our great education uh, department faculty members. Uh, And the school district pays the professional development costs. The teachers then get to choose, actually, I I love this innovation that our, our faculty had here, is the teachers choose halfway through the experience, whether or not they want graduate credit for it. Some teachers are working towards a master's degree, some aren't, and there's some different requirements. And so you can do it just to to better yourself as a teacher, or you can actually work and apply that towards a graduate program. And again, it's I think an innovation that you don't have to, those programs can run uh, parallel to one another for a while. so there are other school districts where we are very interested in increasing access and affordability. Columbus City Schools is our natural partner in this regard, but we we launched a program called the Urban School Districts Initiative where we partnered with a number of schools that serve higher than average student bodies with uh, free and reduced lunch and, and other family income issues that we know are gonna get in the way of their chance to go to college. And we targeted financial aid. We targeted uh, that need-based financial aid Uh, We made sure to reach out to the high school counselor staff and parents to put on programs about how to pay for college, recognize that in these lower income school districts, often the counselors are overwhelmed. They have 500 students assigned to one counselor, and so they need help and we need to be there to help them. Uh, It's even gone so far as uh, a really cool thing that happened here a couple of years ago is we were seeing, as I mentioned before, these these increasing numbers of students coming from Columbus City schools. And we noticed that they weren't doing well in our math class, you know, the, the, the college algebra course that most new students have to go through. just wasn't wasn't clicking for these students for whatever reason. And so, again, our education faculty and our math department faculty went to Columbus City Schools, put on a summer program. We got a grant for this where they worked with the high school math teachers so that we could better understand how they were teaching math in the high schools. And those high school teachers could better understand how we were teaching math at Otterbein and in higher education. And after that program, those performance gaps closed because we reached out to a partner and we figured out what the problem was and we worked together to solve it. We didn't complain, oh, well, these students aren't ready for college. You don't hear that phrase here. We talk about being a student ready campus, not college ready students because the deficiency is not on those students. They have been admitted to Otterbein. We believe they can be successful. The deficiency is in us trying to understand how best to help them overcome whatever obstacles in their path. It's a mentality shift and you have to work through partners as opposed to just pretending that these students come to us as empty vessels. They don't come to us as empty vessels. They've been educated, they've been supported, they've gotten here through a variety of systems that we need to tap into so that we close those gaps.
0: I am, you know this, because I've said it already (laughs) during this conversation. I just, I'm so moved by it. It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And the fact that, I I mean, I don't know what every single college or university is doing, um, you know, reaching back into the K-12 system and saying, here's how we do it here. But hearing you talk about this is... uh, I hope everyone understands how important this is, and I hope everyone hears it, because that kind of thinking and that kind of partnership and collaboration between two different kinds of educational systems is so important to a student's success. Understanding the environments that people are learning in, the environments that people are teaching in, all of that, those are all inputs into the students that show up on Otterbein's campus or any other campus. Um, This is really important work, and uh, it just gets me super excited.
1: Well, and Kevin, just to to hammer on that just for a second, because obviously we're we're agreeing with you on this stuff. When I talk about the the prestige and elitism thing, that's the rot in the center of higher ed, that's Mm -hmm. the kind of thinking that gets in the way of these partnerships. If, If we were an elitist institution and a student wasn't able to perform in our math class, we would assume the problem is the student, right? We're right. They're not ready. And it's if we're elitists, it's our job then to be filters, to be to to desert, decide which students are worthy and which are not, as opposed to being pumps, pumps that help those students overcome those obstacles and solve those problems moving forward. That's the difference in mentality that dropping elitism will get you. Exactly. Exactly. I love it. Um, what about
0: um, adult? Uh, adult learner pa- partnerships, and we'll save the point for last, because I think that's um, one of my favorite parts. But what do, what do adult learner partnerships look like at Otterbein
1: University? They are uh, This is a work in progress for us. If you went back 20 years ago, Kevin, you, you would have found Otterbein uh, an adult degree completion program called the Weekend College that had almost 1,000 students enrolled. It's gone it's gone and, and and i regret that it's gone but what happened as best i can piece together is our traditional population was growing uh, and so, there was no financial pain to losing it, and uh, other players came into that marketplace, you know places like the University of Phoenix uh, we, we have some local institutions that I'm not, i 'm not I admire them. Franklin University is a great job in this space, right and so they came into the space otterbein didn 't fight for the market, and so it sort of went away and at this point we, we don 't have many adult learners on our campus in undergraduate programs in graduate sure. programs, certainly we do. So we need to get back into this space. This is an important extension of our mission and a lot of the students who do well here. But again, it's through partnership. If we just decided tomorrow, hey, let's let's put up an adult degree completion program. We'll just put it out in the market. We'll advertise it a little bit. It'll be great. I don't think that's going to work. It's a competitive space at this point. We right. we don't we don't have the right course structures. We would have to have faculty with better understanding about how to serve this population. We don't have a reputation in this space anymore. And so our partner in adult degree completion is going to be Columbus State Community College. Mm -hmm. Columbus State Community College has actually moved their Westerville Education Center, which used to be on the other side of town, onto our campus. And uh, in their former location, again, uh, pre-pandemic, 1,500 students a year would run through that location. And it was just sort of a hodgepodge of courses. You couldn't get a whole associates there. What they've moved now to our campus in Westerville is going to be entirely two plus two programs with Otterbein. Wow. If you're a Columbus State student on this site, you will have been dual admitted as a new student to Otterbein. So you don't have to go for two years at Columbus State and hope you get in, right? We're going to admit you immediately and make you part of that campus community. We're going to assign you a joint academic advisor to make sure you don't take the wrong course. You don't lose stuff and transfer. And then we're intentionally building these two plus two pipelines. So you can have the same advisor, the same parking spot. And work through, on a four-year basis, a degree program that will be uh, less expensive than any of the public universities in the state of Ohio, right here on site. And as Dave Harrison, their president of Columbus State, and I to say, this, we want this to be the most innovative partnership between a community college and a private institution in the country. And we think we have the ingredients to do that. Oh, by the way, we're going to build a building that will house them. And we'll have another partner that's uh, Southside Early Learning that is interested in bringing in a child care center. Stop and it'll be it. will be an an 18 hour a day childcare center, Kevin. And so during the day, it can serve, you know, faculty, staff and other people that need childcare during the day, because we don't have that on campus. We need that, it's high demand. Uh, And in the evenings, it can serve adult learners who need some place to put their kid while they go to their three hour class. And so Southside gets to use their facility 18 hours a day is a much more attractive financial model for them. And we get in the same building with Columbus State, a childcare center to serve that population. We couldn't do this without partnership.
0: Oh my word. Oh my word. I love this. I love conversations like this about innovation and understanding not just what people need in their educational experience, but what they need in their lives so that they can get the educational experience. And I think, granted, the role and, and responsibility of higher ed has, you know, ballooned, right? We're now, you know, higher ed is now responsible for mental health and uh food security and all these other things which yes i agree with there if there are resources to be you know invested in those spaces yes i fully agree but the way that you're going about addressing these needs just makes so much sense because there's shared skin in the game um everyone gets a benefit um and especially students you know can take the time they need to study get educated and graduate and move on to whatever is next in their lives. And I think that is the most incredible benefit to all of this is that it's so student-centered. Like that's the only thing that these partnerships are about is like making sure that students succeed. And of course the secondary uh, motivation is that there's benefit from the universities and colleges that are, that are in nonprofits that are uh, participating. But this is fantastic. Um, I guess lastly is the point. And this is a struct like this, Facility is absolutely mind-boggling to me. Just please explain from a high level, and then we'll kind of dive deep, deeper into that because I think the model is fantastic.
1: Yeah. So, I, and and this is my predecessor, Kathy Crandall, gets full credit. I showed yes. up just in time to cut the ribbon and take all the credit. <laughs> I i, I did this. This the conception of this thing was not mine, but it matches. Again, I yes. came here for a reason. This was really exciting stuff. Um, yes. Shout out to so Kathy Crendle, fo- Yes, that's right. I, hopefully, she's listening in. Uh, so. Uh, we, we were gonna launch an engineering program uh, four or five years ago. And, and obviously to launch engineering, you need new labs and a new facility and all that. And the university had bought a former manufacturing facility, 60,000 square feet on the west side of campus just to control the land some, you know, some decades earlier. And it was just there. It was literally housing. Uh, It was it was furniture storage. You know, all all the old bunk loft beds from the residence halls, I guess, were stacked in there. And so, uh, okay, well, this would be a good place for the engineering program, but we don't need 60,000 square feet. So what else are we going to do with it? So in there is engineering classrooms and labs uh, and other programs are based out of there, too. Then there's a maker space, uh, which is laser engravers and 3D printers and a wood shop and a metal shop and all this crazy expensive stuff that I'm not allowed to touch because I would hurt myself. But it's all very cool to see the students (laughs) working on it. And that's engineering students use it. Art students use it. It's designed as a STEAM center because think about artists, you know, and they're doing sculpture and they need all this equipment is great for them. Um, uh, It is open to the community so you can buy a membership to it. Uh, Then most of the square footage in this building though, Kevin, I think this is what you're driving at, is dedicated to corporate partnership. So we have everyone in the space from startups that have spun out of like, you know, we're, we're near Ohio State, which is a research institution. So a startup uh, spins out of them and needs a place to land. They've landed at the point. We've had Fortune 500 companies in the building and everything in between all different fields and uh, different industries that they're working in. And they lease spaces in the building uh, in exchange for them leasing in the building. One of the things we ask of them is you need to work with Otterbein undergraduates in your company. So they hire interns, they work with classes on R&D. The companies are really excited about it because it's a lot of R&D work. And so uh, there's a lot of PhDs that work for these companies that always love the campus environment. And so here they get to come and they get to be part of a campus environment, work with students again, uh, but still get their good paycheck from their private employer, right? And so they get (laughs) the best of both worlds. Right. Uh, our students get these hands-on applied experiences, and it is a game changer. And then it's a community center too. We have all sorts of event spaces, and this has become the hub for community activity in in Westerville, Ohio. If there's a community meeting, lifelong learning community, state of the state of the city address, it's all happening at the point.
0: And so, what are some of the um, some of the projects or products or? things that the students get to work on. I mean, it's, it's not just like interning, right? It's like, it's actual employment. And so he talked a little bit about the opportunities that exist in the, in the space from the partners that are in the building.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's all over the place. So let's give you a couple of examples from different, different ends of the spectrum here, right? Uh, we've had JP Morgan Chase in the building and obviously they're a uh, fortune, I don't even know, 10, 25, right. whatever. And they're, they're huge, man. right? So they're <laughs> just, just huge. I mean, beyond our understanding, huge. And, and what they're doing at, at the point is, uh, or have been doing at the point, is, is uh, financial technology. So they're working on uh, cryptocurrency, uh, virtual branches. And so we have a bunch of, uh, Uh, virtual reality goggles and things so you walk into a virtual branch and they're testing all that out and our students are working on these projects in fact one of my favorite uh pictures is we we got a visit from uh jamie Dimon, the ceo of jp morgan chase was on campus and a bunch of otterbein students had him in a corner and he's wearing a virtual reality headset (laughs) and you know groping at the at the air around him and i'm taking pictures of jamie Dimon doing this which is pretty entertaining to me um so that's on the one hand on the other hand uh, another example was we have a company called stable Stables stable with a z at the end uh where it's actually a, an honor by an alum and good friend who decided to do a startup where he was frustrated by everywhere you go you find a shaky table at a restaurant and you what do you do you, you shove sugar packets or a, or a or a bunch of napkins underneath to stop it from shaking and so this is a, a new leg system it's called tap to adapt where you sort of just sort of hit hit the side of it and it it evens any flat surface on any rough terrain and so it's being for use first in construction environments you have a sawhorse on a construction site and it's a rough construction site this will give you a flat surface on any rough terrain and and that was developed in the point it was made the prototype was made in the maker space and students have been involved from the beginning I love it
0: I love it and so then and so when you talk about funding an initiative like this, um, obviously the bill, I mean, it's, it was an expensive project and it's, you know, state of the art materials, et cetera. Uh, how are you making it profitable or, or worth the investment or how is it paid for it?
1: Yeah, so the the renovation of the building was obviously an expensive project, sure. and so we used university resources. We did fundraising. We actually found this pitch to companies was pretty compelling. We we had you know, American Electric Power and other big companies here in Central Ohio that came in and wanted to be part of this project. But actually, we got a big chunk of money from the city of Westerville nice. because they want they want economic development, and, and the pitch was, which now we're, we're united with them that. A university should be an engine of economic development. You just have to be intentional about building that bridge. And so instead of our traditional model on college campuses, well, that's the art building, and that's the science building, and that's the theater building, you know, this sort of shook it up. And it's hard to describe the point in in a short way because it is the bridge from the university into the economy, into employers, into corporate America, into the community. And so the idea, and this is uh, the, the new building we'll build with Columbus State and Childcare Center and other opportunities like this, we're going to keep expanding on this concept because you have the revenue from the tenants. Uh, it's not free. Uh, if you want to lease space in there, we're charging you. It's class A office space. Right. Uh, right. Uh, we have obviously the student revenue because we're using a bunch of classrooms. Engineering is in there. We have some modest revenue from the makerspace people joining that and, and getting access to all of those cool machines and equipment in there. Uh, and then I, the thing that I can't quite quantify is I think it has a huge impact on student recruitment because, mm-hmm. Most campus tours, let's face reality here, are the same thing. It's yes. a leafy green campus, and you've got an old building that's a hundred years old, and we've got one too. It's Towers Hall, it's beautiful, and it has an Ivy on it. And you talk about faculty who you know know your names in a close caring community, yeah. and you talk about <laughs> diversity. And I, yeah. I mean, we're all given the same stupid tour, right? It's there's and it's all true. We're not lying, but it's you can't tell the difference. You will not find another building like The Point on any other college campus anywhere near us. Maybe in the country, I don't know, but certainly not in our market here. And so the tour starts and ends at The Point. And you pass Towers Hall on the Leaf Green campus on the way. But the point of seeing students in these environments working with employers, we take your outcomes, your what you want and your career goals seriously, and we're going to do these hands-on applied things that's what makes, I think, a different – when you walk away from Otterbein, you're like, huh, I saw something I didn't see on the tour at that other school. Right. And so there's an impact, I think, more broadly beyond uh, just the revenue that that square footage produces. So I'm
0: glad you brought that up. So uh, I'm curious about um, when you take into, all of, take into consideration all of what you've talked about today, the your thoughts on price and prestige – Um, Your views and action and initiatives around partnerships at all levels of uh, the educational spectrum. Have have these things changed the way that you market Otterbein University? Have the stories shifted? Do you say different? Is there a different language that you use because of the different way that you deliver an experience?
1: It's a great question from a marketing guy, too, Kevin. That, that's you're, you're absolutely right. You're, you're hitting on the right thing. I, I, again, I, I don't. No one's doing this on purpose. But one of the other weaknesses of American higher is we're not very differentiated. You you can't exactly. tell campuses apart, and we have we already have a consumer base that is not well educated in telling the difference. They turn to things like rankings as a result because we don't do a good job of telling the difference. So it's it's not about being better or worse. It's about being distinctive as your institution. I would never say that we're better than Ohio State or worse than Ohio State, but we're very different. We're not better or worse than Ohio Wesleyan or Capitol or Denison or you name it, you know all the competitors around here, mm-hmm. but we're different. And are you clear about that? And so the conversation we had over the last year was, okay, we think we're different in this space that the point has brought us, that we're going to be the school that deliberately links your career goals, to experiential learning opportunities that tie into a great, broad liberal arts curriculum—that's a distinctive space. That's a distinctive story we can tell. The problem in telling that story was uh, we couldn't say that every student would have those experiences. Right. We could say, "Hey, look—you know, we got students working with J.P. Morgan Chase and The Point," but we can't tell every student they're going to do that. Right? Oh, Chase right. isn't—they're big, but I don't know if they're that big, right? Uh, and so, what we're launching and marketing this year. And then next year's incoming class will be the first class in the program. Is a program we're calling Every Student Will. And it's just that if you come to Otterbein, every student will have a career map and a mentor from the moment they set foot on campus. If you come to Otterbein, every student will attend a sophomore career and vocational exploration camp like we bring them in early as as freshmen for orientation we're bringing them as sophomores in early to do this we're going to match you with alumni mentors and make sure you're finding not just a career but a life purpose and calling junior year every student will at Otterbein have an immersive experience most of them will be in professional settings but it might be study abroad it might be something cross-cultural every student's going to have that co-curricular life-changing thing that doesn't always happen in the classroom senior year every student will have an intentional uh uh transition plan working with alumni in their field we're going to do an adulting 101 thing as part of the senior year seminar personal financial literacy, media literacy, so you know you're being lied to, these sorts of life skills that we need desperately college grads to have that we hope they get in the curriculum, but how do we make sure every student will? And so we're actually doubling down, not just marketing-wise, but in developing the program to make sure we can deliver this for every student. Uh, I have two more questions that
0: uh, your, your response has kind of triggered for me in my brain. The first is, as you start to broaden I don't want to call it offer, broaden the spectrum of care that you're offering mm-hmm. students. How did you go about hiring and filling the gaps in the workforce to start to like that's in, that's a major investment, like not every college can just start hiring people to to meet these new needs for, for uh, students. Um, what did that look like just kind of
1: from a high level? The first thing I'd say, Kevin, is is we probably haven't hired enough. And we have relied on a remarkable group of creative and dedicated faculty and staff who have gone above and beyond to make these things happen, right? We've hired a few new positions. There there are positions, say, for example, that run The Point and manage corporate relationships now and things like this. But it's not some wholesale, as you know, we're not a wealthy institution. We're we're, we're not a poor one either. We're somewhere in the middle, right? And so it's not like we had a, the, the money tree that grows out back of Harvard doesn't grow here, right? It's I don't have one. Um, And so we have to make tough choices about resource allocations. And so it's been about creativity. So it's things like um, we uh, and this was not my idea. It was actually the staff's idea that, that we had a center for career development and a center for student success. As we're talking about a program like every student will, the staff came and said, we think we should merge. We think we should be a one stop shop all things academic and career related because those things are so intertwined that we're in two different offices with two different staffs running two different programs doesn't make any sense anymore. We have to be united around this. It's about faculty who have found corporate partnerships and brought them to us and integrate those corporate partnerships into their classroom, right? Uh, Sometimes it's interns. Sometimes we're getting great corporate experiences because a company will come to us and say, hey, we have this problem. We have this new product. We need this market research done. And a faculty member will, will, will embed that into their course Right. So you're not hiring someone to do that. You're just reshaping a course to have that hands on real life, non theoretical stuff in the course. Uh, so, I, I mean, I'd be happy to go through details with anyone to talk about it. You know, we didn't get a, a billion dollar gift that's paying for all this stuff. Right. We prioritized. We made some tough choices, but mostly it's been the dedication, creativity of our faculty and staff.
0: And the commitment to being a student-centered organization, institutions, right. and I think that matters. And then the last question I have for you, if you could just speak to it from your your perspective, is what do you think gets in the way of lots of other college presidents, leaderships, university leaderships, to make decisions like like the ones that you've been making and have made uh, in being student-centered? Is it the rankings? Is it just the historical nature of higher ed? Like. Why does it feel like such a revolutionary act to behave the way that you're you're behaving and benefit to the student
1: yeah I, I don't have a great answer to that to that question that's a terrible premise to an answer but I'm gonna give it to you anyway because I don't I don't pretend to understand that entirely totally I think I think it is such a challenging environment for most institutions in higher ed right now the shrinking demographics the more competitive environment we're all out try, trying to out discount each other. Um, and what, what you're hearing and that, what sounds exciting from Otterbine is that we're not going to play that game. We're going to play our own game, right? Because playing that game, I don't really see a road, a path forward there. There will be for some schools, if you've got a billion dollar endowment and a money tree out back, you might be able to make this rankings and prestige thing work for you. Hey, more power to you, I guess. But for 99% of schools, that's not gonna work, but you're, you're caught in this loop. And the reality is saying something like, we don't care about prestige, is a scary thing to say, Because oh my God, what happens if, as you asked, what happens if our rankings fall? What happens if, you know, by serving first-generation students, our average ACT goes down by a point? Oh my God, what's gonna happen? The reality is though, I don't see another alternative. I just don't. I look around at the competitive landscape. I don't see a path forward otherwise. And so you've got to define your own game because you're going to lose that other game. It's not going to work. And my goal at Otterbein is what most schools think is build prestige and they will come. Right. We get higher in the rankings and then those students will come and then they'll be willing to pay money to come. Right. That's the theory. Okay. so I need to discount the heck out of 30 ACT students. And give them all 90% discounts and lose tons of money on every single student that comes here to drive up that average. I need to do silliness like uh, spend all sorts of money marketing myself, not to families but to other campuses so that they vote for me higher on these rankings forms. Right. It incentivizes all these things that are only going to cost me money. I'll add one more. I need to attract those 30 ACT students that are from higher income families. I need to build a Disneyland campus. I need a Starbucks in every corner. I need a lazy river. I need a climbing wall. I need apartment style residence halls. I need all this stuff that costs tons of money. But has no impact on education. None. In fact, you can argue it hurts education, but that's what you have to do to compete in that space. And so you are then stuck with declining revenue per student as you're trying to discount and buy those high ability students and increasing cost to operate your Disneyland campus. Lower revenue per student and higher costs of operations is not a path I'm interested in. And I think other schools will wake up to that fact.
0: That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage. We'll be back soon with a new episode. And until then, you can find us on Twitter at BoltHigherEd. Higher Ed. And you can find me, Kevin Tyler, on Twitter
1: at Kevin C. Tyler2.